Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. It's really good to be with you tonight. We have a, a, a very interesting lineup of guests. We also have Rich back in the engineering room, take care of our calls. So it's going to be fun tonight. Uh, our first guest is David P. Hooper. I'm going to t- let him tell you a little bit about his background, but the reason we invited him on the program is that financing uh, and finding the funds for, for growth, financing sales, and just about anything to do with small business is, is still proving uh, difficult. Dave, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me on, Don. My pleasure. Well, you're going to talk about um, how uh, small businesses uh, can take advantage of the JOBS Act. But as we ask every guest, tell us first a little bit about yourself personally before we get into the uh, nitty-gritty of the the program. Well, sure, Don. Uh, I'm a partner at Barnes & Thornburg in Indianapolis. Uh, I've been practicing law for 13 years now. I've cut my teeth up in Chicago with uh, the big uh, law firms up there uh, where, I, where I learned the ropes uh, and uh, came to Indianapolis uh, about nine years ago. Uh, I have a wife and two beautiful kids. My wife is also an attorney down here in Indianapolis. And uh, I originally hail from Southern California in San Diego, uh, son of a, of a Navy uh, physician where we were stationed there. Uh, went to uh, school on the East Coast at George Washington University and uh, ultimately ended up in, in the Midwest where I've been practicing law at a, at a great firm with great clients. So uh, it, it's, been a, it's been quite a journey for me, and uh, I represent a, a broad spectrum of clients in the securities and investment management and financial institutions world from small startups to large public companies. So uh, for better or worse, I've, I've seen it all from the financing continuum and spectrum, and uh, it, it's, it's been a great ride so far. Well, um, uh, what I'm amazed about, you started with San Diego, and now you're in Indianapolis, so the cold must get to you a little bit. <laughs> it certainly did at first, uh, and and this has always been uh, a hot topic of uh, discussion when I 
meet new folks is uh, how I ended up in in the Midwest from from San Diego. But um, originally, my family uh, hails from the Midwest, and uh, my my immediate family has uh, very close ties to a fantastic university here in Indiana, uh, Valparaiso University, which is where I ended up going to law school and meeting my wife. And as with many uh, uh, folks that, that live in Indiana and, and come to Indiana, uh, once I met my wife, uh, who is an Indiana native, I stayed in Indiana. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, I love my uh, hometown of San Diego, but uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Hoosier now. Well, let's now talk about um, financing, and more specifically, you wanted to come and talk about the JOBS Act, uh, sure. which some people have called a misnomer. But right. anyway, um, uh, tell us your thoughts and, and why uh, small businesses should really look at the JOBS Act as a way of, of uh, generating a re- a revenue and cash. Well, it's very interesting, Don. The fundraising environment continues to be very difficult, especially for the smallest of our startup entrepreneurial companies. And back in 2012, when the JOBS Act was passed by Congress, uh, those were the types of companies that this statutory regime was supposed to help. That, that's who it was targeted at helping. And in my view, and in the view of many practitioners in my area, the JOBS Act is a misnomer, and it just simply has not lived up to its promise. There are exceptions, but by and large, the JOBS Act has not fulfilled what it was sold as to the investing public into entrepreneurs. Um, and, and, you know, the, the JOBS Act was uh, originally passed in April of 2012 uh, during an election year with strong majorities in both houses of Congress among both parties and with support of the president. And when that happens, especially during an election year, I'm always suspicious first and foremost. But uh, uh, besides the politics of it, the JOBS Act was, was touted as a mechanism to give small businesses tools to really break out of the uh, stagnant capital raising and economic environment we were seeing after the financial crisis and and really the low growth environment we continued to be in in 2012 and, and and therefore you know the overarching point of the jobs act was to streamline and eliminate regulatory barriers small businesses face when raising capital. Uh, now, the, the main concepts of the JOBS Act uh, are, are really designed uh, to uh, provide that streamlining, but unfortunately the principal problems with the JOB Act itself and the statute and the SEC's regulations implementing the JOBS Act is that they've attached so many conditions and regulatory requirements to use the new capital raising methods provided under the law that for all practical purposes, the new capital raising methods are very difficult, if not impossible in many cases, to use by small businesses. And the current data 
since the passage of the JOBS Act suggests that the new capital raising methods aren't being used as intended. Uh, overall, I would say that the concept, uh, the concepts embodied in the JOBS Act are the correct concepts to be used by small businesses in order to raise capital. Uh, and for instance, I'll go into a few examples. The JOBS Act uh, is divided into a number of sections, uh, but the main sections uh, that really uh, caught a lot of headlines, number one, <clears throat> was the, the elimination of the uh, ban on general advertising of securities offerings. That uh, was the number one provision of the JOBS Act that really caught headlines and, and, and seemed to be a very beneficial aspect of the, of the law. Uh, for years, uh, the uh, private securities offerings that companies would have to engage in in order to raise startup capital and growth capital were limited, uh, principally in the sense of uh, capital had to be raised from uh, business associates, friends, family, uh, other funding sources uh, without the use of a general advertisement or a general solicitation. Uh, so that provided some roadblocks to capital raising. The JOBS Act provided that that ban on general solicitation and general advertising was to be eliminated, uh, which in my view is a positive step. Uh, the problem with the, uh, the the fine print, so to speak, of the of the Jobs Act statute and the elimination of the ban on general solicitation is that it imposed a number of different requirements for companies to be able to use the general solicited offerings. Now, one of which is that issuers now have to. Uh, take what are called reasonable steps to verify that the investors that are investing in a generally solicited offering are in fact high net worth accredited investors. Now this is a very oh. vague concept. And sure, let me just interrupt you. For, so sure. you're saying, yes, you can advertise, but anybody you come in that talks to you and wants to invest, you have to uh, vet whether they're uh, they're capable of investing and whether they're knowledgeable investors. Would that be a that's right, that's right, Don. You have to take the companies have to take affirmative steps in order to bring in an investor and have them invest in your company using uh, an advertisement or a general solicitation. So you could put up a website or put an ad in a magazine and uh, solicit investors to invest, but you have to do more. You have to take reasonable steps in the SEC's parlance in order to verify that these investors are, in fact, high net worth. The, pr the, the principal problem with that is the vagueness of the standard. And when standards are vague and the SEC doesn't give a specific guidance on what's acceptable and what's not, what happens? People don't use the capital raising method. And that's a big problem. Uh, 
Um, another real roadblock to using generally solicited offerings right now is uh, the draconian penalties that the SEC is imposing for missing the numerous notice filings that are required for a generally solicited offering. There's three or four different uh, paper filings that you have to make with the SEC uh, in order to tell them that you're doing a generally solicited offering and uh, being able to use it. The problem is that if you miss any one of these filings, you are the company is effectively prohibited from raising capital for one year, uh, and that's a that's a very uh, very stiff penalty, especially for smaller entrepreneurial companies who may not have access to uh, you know, lawyers uh, or 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 advisors that can help them know when to file uh, all of the notice filings with with the regulatory agencies. So, uh, you, you know, th this has been borne out in the data. The SEC has released uh, some data that says since the final uh, rules on the general solicitation uh, lifting of the ban were adopted last summer, only about 8% of all private offerings have used general solicitation, uh, and only uh, roughly $9.5 billion out of over uh, close to $250 billion in private capital raising money uh, has come from a generally solicited offering. And frankly, uh, I, the, the investing public was expecting a lot more, and, and frankly, so was I. Uh, but I think the limitations on the use of this capital raising method is due to these uh, additional requirements that uh, were really snuck into the fine print of the statute. You know, that, it's very interesting because uh, uh, over the past two years I've tried to talk to companies that have gone this route and uh, talked to several that started it and then just abandoned it. So um, in, this, in the time we have remaining, what can a, uh, uh, given the scenario, how can a small business to still take advantage of this um, uh, of this opportunity if indeed they want to go down this route? I think in order to generally advertise an offering, um, small businesses uh, really need to have a strong compliance function within their organization. And it goes beyond necessarily having advisors, lawyers, uh, accountants at your behest but also to have a culture of compliance within the organization itself. Because we all know that entrepreneurs need to move fast. They need to react to market uh, uh, pressures and uh, raise capital quickly in certain situations. Uh, the more requirements a company has to follow in order to take advantage of a general solicited offering, uh, the more chances there are of missing a step. So mm. compliance function is, is critical in making sure you have checklists and, and tickler systems to make sure that you're making the required filings that the JOBS Act requires of you and the SEC regulations require of you and following those to a T because otherwise, uh, if you don't follow those rules, 
the offering will not comply with the general solicitation rules, and you could have the SEC or State Securities Commission knocking on your door. Well, let me ask, uh, given all of this, what is the minimum amount that a small business should really uh, look to uh, for doing such a solicitation? I mean, is it $1 million, $2 million, 100000 I mean, it seems to be a lot of work, to, and if you're going to do it, raise uh, you should be raising more money. Absolutely, and that that's a great question, Don. And uh, this also gets into the, your question also gets into another aspect of the Jobs Act, the crowdfunding provisions of the Jobs Act, uh, which also have uh, some promise and some uh, and some and some warts on them as well. But uh, what what I typically advise clients is uh, you should go out and try and get as much money in your capital raise as you possibly can. Um, given the use of proceeds or the intended use of proceeds that, that you have for the offering. Uh, so in other words, if, if your uh, business plan calls for uh, use of uh, $2 million to purchase capital equipment, uh, go for the full $2 million. Don't just try and go for a million. Um, the, in the crowdfunding space, for example, there are a number of uh, websites that we're all uh, familiar with that are already up there, including names such as Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which are not necessarily equity crowdfunding websites, but uh, but more uh, charity fundraising uh, crowdfunding websites. But you'll see a lot of the companies that uh, use these crowdfunding websites uh, go for uh, pretty small dollars. Uh, some of them get up into the six figures, but most are in the low five figures and upward. I typically recommend, because of the compliance costs and because of the transaction costs, in raising any amount of capital, you go for as much as possible. And I typically use uh, a million, a million and a half to two million as a baseline. Um, uh, but it's really driven by the particular business plan of the company and uh, the specific capital needs of the company. Well, you know, uh, two, uh, two things I want to say. Uh, we had on, as a matter of fact, just uh, two weeks ago, um, a man who uh, funded his uh, a company first, through Kickstarter, but the first time he did it, he, he asked for 75000 and and didn't get it. The second time, he asked for 25000 and got it. <laughs> and, um, and he reached the total, but uh, uh, because uh, people felt that he wouldn't make the seventy-five thousand, and as it dragged on, they withdrew their uh, uh, some people uh, their commitment. But the other side of the coin, uh, and the question I'd ask you: Now, let's say you're raising two million dollars. You you need a lawyer like yourself. You need accountants. You need other people. Uh, how, what percentage of what you raise should be devoted to the people that are helping you raise it? Another good question, Don. And uh, in, in many instances, uh, that that's really tough to gauge on a percentage basis. Uh, how I usually look at it is that I, I've done this for so long that uh, I can put within a 
pretty decent range what a capital raising transaction would cost in aggregate monetary terms. Uh, and based on that, I typically advise clients to say, look, uh, you're usually going to face the same transaction costs, same legal fees, putting together a $1 million offering as you would, frankly, for a 5 to $10 million offering. Uh, the, you, the, the company will have disclosure obligations, will need to put together offering materials, uh, make sure corporate governance is, is in the right place, making sure the organizational documents of the company, uh, articles, bylaws, etc., are uh, nice and tidy. And so all of those compliance costs and transaction costs uh, will be roughly in the same range uh, regardless of the amount of capital that is being raised. Now, there are certain exceptions to that if you're going for a very small offering. But if you're going for an offering of any uh, substantial amount, uh, really for growth capital, uh, those transaction costs are going to fall in a similar range. Uh, but what is the range? Uh, for you know, for for mid-sized to uh, larger law firms uh, and using accountants, uh, CPAs to uh, provide uh, audited financials, you know, you you could be looking upwards of twenty-five thousand dollars to put uh, offering documents together uh, and have those uh, compliance uh, activities done properly. Um, and, and those compliance costs are going to be the same uh, for a $1 million offering as a $2 million offering. So that's why it's usually advisable for companies to uh, go for that golden ring and get as much as they can or at least uh, uh, figure into their projections as high of a capital raises as their use of proceeds can stomach. Okay, Dave, I, 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 you, you've been so helpful, but I hate to cut you off. But our next guest is uh, on the line. Uh, how could uh, the name of your company again, and how can people reach you? Sure, Barnes and Thornburg uh, in Indianapolis, and uh, we can be reached at uh, our website is www.btlaw.com, and uh, we have uh, biographical materials on all of our attorneys, including myself, on our website. Okay. Uh, Dave, really glad to have had you on the program and very informative. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Our next guest is Jonathan Durkee. He's Vice President, Product Management for Fleet Maddox. But I want to give a little background on this. First off, Jonathan, are you on the line? I am. How are you, Don? I'm fine, Jonathan, but hold on one minute. I, uh, a funny thing, uh, I met Jonathan last week at a, uh, a press conference for his company, Fleet Maddox, and uh, one of the things they presented uh, was uh, uh, literally a new system to, or an improved system to uh, better manage field service people, uh, amongst others. But uh, uh, what happened this Saturday, uh, no, what, just uh, two days ago, uh, my uh, sink clogged up, and we had a mess. And I, um, and I called, and I'll name the company Rotor Rooter, and 
Um, and I thought for sure it would be a long time, and they said, no, they'll be there within two hours. And when the man came um, in and they took care of my problem in, in less than an hour, but it turned out that they were being ma that particular group was being managed by Fleet Maddox. So I saw a demonstration of what we're talking about. And that's the best commercial you're ever going to get, huh, Jonathan? Yeah, that's right. That's a good story. But anyway, we always ask our guests uh, first, Jonathan, to talk about uh, them uh, personally about a little bit of their background before we get into anything else. So, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's really great to be here. Um, oh, are you so kidding? I, your, your PR people twisted my arm. <laughs> They're pretty good at that. Um, well, just a little bit about me. I um, so for a living, I help you know build products that small businesses use to improve their productivity and reduce their uh, expenses and improve their customer service and. Uh, I, I love my work. I love designing products that people are excited to use. And uh, I also like to cook, and I, I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that they're pretty related. Well, keep on talking. The floor is yours. But but uh, uh, how long have you been with Fleet Maddox? I've been with Fleet Maddox for about seven and a half years. And it it's, feels like... Uh, when I say that out loud, it feels like a long time, but um, it's it's just flown by. Um, it's a great market to be in. It, it's some really exciting technology, and our customers get a tremendous amount of benefit out of um, using a solution like Fleetmatics Reveal. It, it it helps provide some visibility into the location of their field workers and enables them to drive a lot of improvements in their business and um it's it's been an exciting time it's uh it's a great market to be in and a really good company well we're going to talk about that but uh uh and uh what i was impressed with and really asked you on the program was about was the fact that, uh that there isn't a person uh uh in our audience and, and most people that haven't waited uh, four to eight hours for a service personnel at some point, and uh, so, and also uh, uh, there uh, there are many small businesses with one, two, five, or ten trucks that would like to know uh, where their people are, how they're operating, and uh, how they can better manage it. And, and that's what uh, Fleet Maddox is about. So I'm going to let you have the floor and talk about what's the product that, that I think is very, very good. Sure. So um, the name of the product is Fleet Maddox Reveal, and Fleet Maddox Reveal is essentially a GPS vehicle tracking solution that uses an installed vehicle tracking device underneath the dashboard of, uh, of the vehicle, and that 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 device provides a regular um, signal on the location of that vehicle, along with the speed and the direction and the distance traveled uh, back to our network. And we provide the customer with a very simple, easy to use interface where they can 
monitor the location of, uh, of their field workers. They can also get great visibility into their, the history of their field workers, and they use that history in a lot of different ways. It's a great way to coach their drivers on safety and efficiency. Um, it, it's also, uh, it also provides visibility into um, fuel efficiency as well because our product comes with a fuel card and any purchases you make on that fuel card will just flow right into your account. Um, so we can, we can give you visibility into what's your fuel economy on those vehicles right alongside some of the, the driving behaviors that will negatively impact fuel economy like idling your vehicles or high speed. Um, so there, there's a lot of benefits. Customers use the solution in a lot of different ways, but the, the two biggest expense savings are typically in, in lower fuel costs and uh, lower payroll costs, and we often see a, a big increase in productivity, um, you know, p being able to complete more jobs in, in a day, and it's, it's also very common that our customers are able to project a, a much tighter service window, similar to that Roto-Rooter story that you told us at the beginning of the call, so it's, it, it, it has a nice impact on customer service as well. Well, also, I thought there was another feature that I found fascinating. You could also uh, cross-reference by the individual drivers, because sometimes they use different trucks. Am I right? Oh, that's absolutely true. You know, I, a, lot of our, a lot of the benefits of the product um, really take shape in the ability to coach an individual driver as opposed to coaching the, the truck or the van. And so... Um, you know, we have a system that, that lets a, a driver identify themselves when they start up a vehicle, but that's not enough. Uh, Fleetmatics Reveal actually lets you orient all of the information and your metrics and your reporting that come out of the software uh, by the driver, not just the vehicle. So it makes the information a lot more, a lot more actionable for that business owner when they're coaching their team. Well, isn't there some re resistance by drivers to the idea that they're really being that closely monitored? You know, that's a great question, and you know, I've I've gotten that I've gotten that question many times over the years, and you know, it's funny. A lot of a lot of customers, um, you know, end up uh, using the information in the you know that comes from our solution to help uh, protect their drivers. So, you know, that I had a, you know, the day that you and I met, Don, I had a, a customer come into that same press conference and they told me a story about how they'd had an engine blown out that very day and they went into our solution to check to see who was driving it and what they were doing to really, you know, cause that engine to blow. And it turns out that um, it was, that they didn't do anything to cause that engine to blow. So it actually did the driver a favor, favor in that situation, it, you know, it let them know it was really more of a, a mechanical issue as opposed to something that the driver had done. Well, yeah, I, I know that, but um, uh, uh, I, I've seen in the past, uh, having worked with the union printers amongst others, they really resent any sort of uh, uh, monitoring of their activities. Um, uh, and 
subsequent to that, I've talked to a couple of drivers um, about this. I only, uh, I only, uh, what really got me onto the subject was many years ago I covered a murder of a salesman of a postman who um, was murdered by an irate husband, and it turned out that he had slept with almost every woman on his route in the prior five years, and no one at the uh, at the post office was even aware of it because they hadn't monitored his his route. Um, so I, uh, again, I, I bring that up because um, in, in small organizations, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of interpersonal and a lot of resentment. Do, do you not trust me? You're putting this burden, uh, this uh, monitor on me. So uh, yeah. I want to keep bringing it up. So I ask you, uh, how do you answer a question like that? I know you have ready, but give me another way of looking at it. Well, you know, we typically, um, you know, when a when a new customer comes to us and they're they're installing the solution and they, uh, you know, they they want to talk to, you know, they ask us for feedback on how do they how do they communicate this to their drivers, yeah, you know, in case they get any resistance. And we coach them first of all, be be upfront about it. You know, it, this isn't um, this is this is really a coaching tool. It, it, you know, it's not. Um, you know, it's not meant to uh, be Big Brother. And, you know, second, if they see something in the information that looks like it, um, you know, is unusual, they should ask the driver about it. You know, there could be a, a logical, you know, there could be a logical explanation for whatever it is that they're seeing. So, um, you know, you, you never want to take action without actually speaking to the driver. And the, And the last thing is, you know, we, we you know we we suggest that they remind the driver that this isn't this isn't really about monitoring, um, you know, you know, the the details of what they're doing. It, this is really about improving productivity, you know, improving safety and security, and um, ultimately driving the service for the customer. And vehicle location is the best way to do it. Um, and at the end of the day, the truck belongs to that business. And um, if the truck is stolen, this is this is the best way to try and recover it. Well, let's talk a little bit about costs. Uh, sure. uh, how, 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 do, how do you go about charging, and what is the ROI of this whole uh, process? Sure. So um, our product is sold on a subscription basis. The, our pricing is very simple. You're going to pay on a per-month per vehicle charge, just a simple monthly subscription. And on average, that's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $45 per month per vehicle. Now, the return on investment typically takes shape as savings in fuel. So you may save, um, you know, as you may save several gallons of fuel per vehicle per week just by reducing idle time. Uh, it also takes shape in being able to improve the accuracy of your payroll. A lot of these smaller service businesses still use manual paper time cards. So being able to tighten up just a few minutes a day on those paper time cards um, you know, can, can really add up to some pretty significant savings. And then if you can increase the number of jobs that you do in a day by one, you know, you really pull a lot of uh, you really pull a lot of revenue forward. 
So you roll all of those things together, and it's pretty typical that our customers will see a positive return on investment in really just a matter of weeks. And I've seen some really compelling stories over the years about the, the dramatic savings that customers have been able to drive. So um, that's, that's it at a high level. Okay. Well, you know, uh, getting back to the Roto-Rooter example, um, what I noticed, though, was the, I still paid uh, – I had to sign a, a, a paper invoice. How, is, uh, and I thought I heard something about you be able to integrate the, uh, the, the time, the charge uh, uh, format so that they come together. Was, was that, yeah, that's I, right. But but, but, so we, but I noticed he didn't have that part of it. Uh, but anyway, tell us a little bit about that because that to me w was the real discontinuity. Uh, because if somehow that paper didn't attach onto that visit and the two, I, I thought there might be a problem. So tell tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, so it, at the same time that we introduced uh, Fleetmatics Reveal, we also introduced another new product, Fleetmatics Work. And Fleetmatic's work is a field service management solution that's designed to help uh, a small business service company organize their customers, their jobs, their schedules, their field workers, even their invoices, all in one simple system. So there's a lot of um, moving parts in a, in a service organization like that plumber that came to your, uh, to your house, Don, and, um, you know, most of those businesses use simple pen and paper to manage all of those details and moving parts. So their schedule is probably on a whiteboard in their office, and when they need to dispatch a job out to the driver, they're probably sending them a text message, or they may be calling them on the phone as well. Um, and when they need a, when they go out to the job and they complete the work, they probably have you sign a piece of paper. So Fleetmatic's work makes all of those things uh, paperless. So you can do all of those things electronically, and you can actually get a, an electronic signature capture and invoice right there in the field. Okay, now I have a little surprise for you. Um, oh, boy. Uh, uh, Danny, uh, Terry uh, Murtaugh is on the line. He's a small business owner. He also happens to be a client of yours, but I invited him on the program because I thought he had a fascinating business. Uh, are hey, you good on? Evening. I'm, I'm here, yeah. Good evening. How are you doing? Well, I have Jonathan Thurkey from uh, Fleet Maddox on the line with you. Excellent. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Terry? Doing very well, thanks. Yeah, I've been saying some terrible things about Fleet Maddox, and uh, I wanted to uh, bring you on, Terry. Not to so much praise Fleet Maddox, but to talk about your business, which I found fascinating, but I thought that the two of them together, uh, we might have a very interesting uh, discussion. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to Fleetmatics and how it's helped helped us run our business. Well, I want to, uh, but before we go further, Terry, first, uh, tell us a little bit about, about what you do and then a little bit of your personal background so the audience knows as much as I do. Sure, sure. Uh, our, our company's called United Worldwide, Inc. We're headquartered in Boston. And we're a private car service 
uh, it caters to corporate clients, and uh, we do provide service all over the world uh, through a network of affiliates primarily. Our, our cars are based in Boston, but we do provide service all over the world. Um, so we deal with uh, you know companies like Fleetmatics, uh, bankers, law firms, venture capital firms, and uh, do all different types of work. Well, which is very difficult. But first, tell us a little bit, Terry, about yourself. Sure. Well, uh, I'm uh, born and raised in Boston, and I, I started off uh, driving a uh, limousine as a, as a part-time chauffeur when I was in my early 20s. And I uh, just um, sort of fell in love with the industry and, and worked for a small company at that time, which, you know, over the 10 years that I worked there, grew to be one of the largest companies in the world. And uh, I worked my way up, you know, from a part-time chauffeur position up to the, eventually the general manager of the company. And it was a, a great education in the industry. Um, so when I was in my early 30s, uh, my longtime friend uh, Jason Dornhofer and I uh, decided to, you know, team up and start a business. I had a lot of industry experience, and Jason had uh, uh, some financial services and a sales background and. Um, it was it was a little bit of a of a risk for us. We were both uh, young guys and you know married. I had a young kid, and um, you know we just decided that we wanted to uh, make this happen. We saw an opening in the uh, in this industry for for a company that just really focuses on you know providing good service, and you know we just thought we'd uh, take the opportunity to start a company. Well, before we get into Fleetmatics, tell us some of the challenges you have running an operation where you're basically dealing with uh, uh, demanding people across the country, because that's what I found fascinating uh, listening to you. Sure. Yeah, it can be challenging. Uh, you know, a lot of work goes into every single reservation that we handle. Um, it's very time sensitive. You know, our clients are you know, always traveling for business and, you know, whether they're on their way to a, you know, a huge meeting or a big deal road show um, or just on the way home to their family after being on the road for a week, you know, there's really, you know, zero margin for error. And uh, by error, I mean, you know, not having the car, you know, where it's supposed to be and when it's supposed to be there. So um, I mean, that's probably the worst thing that we could ever do, and it never happens, would be to not show up. But um, th there's a lot of moving parts to each reservation from when we, you know, take the initial phone call into our office or might come over via email or they may have booked it online through our website. Um, and then it, you know, touches several hands before it actually gets dispatched out to the chauffeur. And, you know, uh, the chauffeur then has to take over that reservation and make sure that, you know, he or she shows up in a, you know, meticulously cleaned vehicle, that they know where they're going before they get the clients in the car, that they have the proper signage, that they greet the clients, take good care of the clients. You know, if any one of these parts doesn't work properly, then, you know, we end up with an unhappy client and could ultimately lose accounts, you know, right through the billing process as well. We have to make sure our pricing is consistent, that our clients are being invoiced in a timely manner. Um, so it's a complete cycle. So our, our while our clients are very, uh, you know, I think they appreciate our business, you know, and, and the way we operate, and they, they seem to be, um, you know, very good to us, you know, as long as we provide 
good service. We, I think we develop relationships with the clients, and they stick around for a long time. But uh, it's it's because we don't really make many errors. There's just not, as I said, there's just no room but for errors. But how do you how do you ensure that you don't make errors? That's why why I invited you on the program, because uh, knowing a little bit about your business to be dangerous, how do you ensure that n- nothing happens? That everything well, happens really, as planned. Go ahead. Well, I know we'll we'll talk about fleet manics in a little bit, and I, and I can tell you how that helps us make sure we don't make errors. But you know, aside from fleet manics, I think we just have to be, you know, very careful with our work. It's you know very detail oriented. We don't just put the reservation in our system, ship it off to the chauffeur, and assume or hope that everything will go well. You know, we have to manage every single step of that reservation uh, from when the clients, you know, first book the ride until they're dropped off at their destination and until we build the ride. So um, we go through a series of checks here in our, in our office. So, you know, one person will take the reservation. Uh, that reservation has to be checked by that person you know, double-checked, and then it has to be checked by another agent within our company who will then actually physically initial it and sign off on the reservation. Um, we verify the flight information within our system uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, we're monitoring the flight times. If flight's an hour early or half an hour late, you know, those obviously something that you always have to consider with every airport arrival in any city to make sure that the vehicle's there when it's supposed to be. Um, we have a whole coding system that we use for our chauffeurs, uh, which are pretty detailed. You know, we don't just hand them paperwork and send them off to do the work. Uh, we have to, uh, you know, our dispatchers communicate with them constantly to make sure that they're on the way to the correct pickup location, that they have the proper signage, confirm the client's name that you're picking up, please confirm your destination, uh, once we've received all that information, then it's considered a code one. They're on the way. Uh, when they're on location, we then confirm uh, the address that they are on location. Again, confirm that they're using the proper signage, and again, confirm their destination at that point, and and so on and so forth. I won't go through every single code. No. It's just a, well, uh, a series let me of ask checking you, and double checking. Let me ask you one critical: How do you find the people that uh, are as meticulous as that? That's that's the challenge. <laughs> um, that is the challenge. I mean, you know, we have a fortunate benefit of, um, you know, having I've been in this industry now for just 20 years, or just hit 20 years. So, um, I, I just know a great network of companies uh, throughout the world that, uh, you know, have worked with from you know with many from worked with for many years. Um, you just build the relationships with these clients and these affiliates. So. These companies, uh, you know, throughout the world in all the, you know, major and minor markets, uh, they're counting on us to represent them and their companies when their clients come to Boston as well. So these are reciprocal relationships. And um, But what about your own employees? How do you find the... The, the employees that you feel that you can trust to watch this process uh, step to step to step. Yeah, that's that's you know that's something that we work very hard to you know make sure we get the right people here. Um, again, having been in the industry for a long time, a lot of our chauffeurs here in Boston are, are ones that I've known for many years. Um, you know, some had. Uh, worked for other companies, and then when Jason and I started this company in 2006, uh, you know, we kept in touch with them throughout the years, and then they eventually, as we got busier and 
had more positions open up, they'd come over and work with us. So some of the people that we employ now, uh, you just have a long time uh, in the industry, as I do. And uh, you know, for people who are new to the industry, we just try to look for real bright people who are, you know, uh, passionate about providing good customer service, detail-oriented people, um, people who just enjoy coming to work every day. And uh, we just work with them to make sure that uh, you know they get trained properly, and we always it's sort of a perpetual training here as we gain new accounts and you know put new procedures in place. Um, so we're we're kind of always working to improve, and you know as as we grow as a company, our employees internally are 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 growing also, and you know we're all constantly uh, trying to learn and help each other. Okay, in a, in a few minutes we have remaining. How does Fleetmatics help you? Um, Fleetmatics helps us uh, obviously uh, on on the financial side. Um, it's it's just been a complete eye opener uh, as far as you know how much it can actually save us. Uh, idling, you know, vehicle idling alone is is something that we always knew was an issue. Um, we really had no way of uh, you know keeping an eye on that before Fleetmatics, you know. Um, if you know we have 14 vehicles here in Boston right now, and uh, you know there's a there's two twofold here. There's a there's a, a law in Massachusetts that the vehicles cannot idle more than five minutes. If they idle more than five minutes, you know you get a warning uh, by the state. You know beyond that, they can issue some pretty serious fines. You know I think the fines start at about a thousand dollars. It's actually sort of small potatoes to the fact that we probably spend, you know, I think it was $2,000 or just over $2,000 last month in excessive idling. Um, so there's a lot of money to be saved there. Uh, excessive mileage on the vehicles, you know, if you have a driver who, you know, clears at the airport at 10 a.m. and his next job's not till 11, um, you know, we ask that they just shut the vehicles down and, uh, you know, wait for the next job. But prior to Fleetmatics, you know, we're certain that, uh, you know, a chauffeur could run over the, you know, this part of town, get a sandwich, or go home for lunch. You know, just those miles add up. Along with the miles come tolls, and you know, exposure for things to happen because your vehicles are somewhere that they shouldn't be. Um, so it's just it's helped us greatly with that. Um, as far as providing customer service, it just helps us to dispatch better and more efficiently. You know, we can see where our vehicles are. When we get a call in, we can see who the closest vehicle is to that uh, pickup location without having to go through and call each and every chauffeur. So we can actually just look at the monitors. Who you know, Everyone's got dual monitors on their desk, so we keep Fleetmatics open uh, at all times. We can just look, see where the cars are, and send the closest vehicle to the pickup. Uh, on a rare occasion, you know, we'll have a client. Um, you know, it might be a very good client of ours or a big client of ours, and you know, they'll come out of their two o'clock meeting and say, "Oh, well, I didn't see a vehicle, so I jumped in a taxi." You know, um, and more important to us than you know, getting paid for the ride to the airport is uh, actually making sure that the client knows that we were in fact there. You know, that's what's most important to us. Uh, so, you know, we don't we don't have to use that one too often, but it's nice to be able to log in and you know send the client a printout and show them you know the the routing and show them the fact that the vehicle was in fact you know right on location where when we said we were going to be there and you know that's important to us because it can help us save a a valuable relationship you know uh Jonathan you want to jump in and and say how people can uh, 
uh, reach you and reach um, your company? Yeah, sure. Um, so you can learn more about Fleetmatic's reveal or Fleetmatic's work at our website, www.fleetmatics.com. And, again, thanks a lot for having us on the show tonight, Don. Well, I'm not letting you go yet. I just wanted to uh, break in because Terry was there. I didn't want you to think I just had you hanging over there. And, and Terry, what's oh. the name of uh, Terry? What's the name of your company? It's United Worldwide Inc. And our website is uh, UnitedPrivateCar.com. Well, that really says what it is. If you, uh, Terry. Uh, you, you you jumped off the cliff to start a new business from uh, the corporate side. What would you uh, what do you um, tell people the key, uh, the key elements of small business uh, success? One or two. The the key elements of small business success. I mean, uh, our our tagline is is you know big company know how, small company values. So we just feel as though uh, you know our culture here is just to sort of uh, you know, maintain, you know, develop and maintain relationships with our clients. You know, we don't ever want our clients to become account numbers to us. Uh, we, um, we, we appreciate our relationships with them very much, and we feel as though they appreciate, you know, being able to call our office and have a familiar voice on the other end of the line, you know, who's not asking for an account number or do you have an account with us. Um, we just think that that's probably the most important is just to, you know, we want to we want to grow obviously, but at the same time, you know, we try to pace our growth so that we can so that we can deliver, uh, you know, a real great personalized level of customer service. And if our audience wanted to reach you directly, if they wanted to reach uh, directly, they could call our office at six one seven seven eight two zero zero five five. Or also again through our website at unitedprivatecar.com. There's a contact us tab. Okay. And Jonathan, if people wanted to talk to you or uh, know, know anything about further on this, uh, how can they reach you? Sure. If if uh, anyone wants to reach me directly, they can call our uh, our 800 number. It's 866-844-2235. Ask for me, and they'll transfer you. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming on today. I uh, hope people don't think it's a, um, a commercial for Fleetmatics, but I just felt uh, after looking at the system and talking with Terry that um, it was something that our audience might want to know about. So thank you both for, for coming here tonight. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Don. Commercial. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2HSA.com. That's 2HSA.com. You know, I think we've had an interesting program tonight. Um, I, w I was tremendously impressed uh, by what Fleet Maddox did. I've been very concerned about whether 
the Jobs Act uh, could, in fact, do what it was intended to do. I'm uh, really sorry to hear uh, uh, what uh, David Hooper had to say because uh, it kind of confirms some of the research we're doing. If you have uh, an idea of anybody that you think should be on this program or have a topic you'd particularly like uh, for us to discuss, please email me at editor at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's editor at smallbusinessdigest.net. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll be back next week with what we hope will be another group of interesting guests. Thank you, and good night. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.